Good morning. Welcome to Pembal Bible Church. I'm Skeet, the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, one uh, announcement for you, just to note, if you came here today and you don't have a Bible with you, there are ESV paperback Bibles at the end of each row. We want to encourage you to use that as we go through the Scriptures together this morning. Also, want to encourage you, if you uh, don't own a Bible, that you can take that one home as our gift to you and uh, pray that you will use it, that God will use it working in you and that you will seek Him in the words of the scripture. Uh, we are in the middle of an exciting study that, that has been just a tremendous blessing to me, where we're going through asking the question, what does the prayer life of Jesus look like? N- not necessarily studying individual prayers and the particular prayers that Jesus prayed, but stepping back and observing in the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, what does Jesus do when he prays? How does Jesus pray? When does Jesus pray? How does prayer work in his life? And, and I want you to see a, a couple things. We've gone through two sessions here. And, and the first thing we saw is that Jesus viewed prayer very much as preparation for whatever it is God was going to do. He begins his public ministry. He's baptized immediately, driven into the wilderness where he fasts and prays. Where Jesus demonstrates his dependence upon the Father to be greater than his need even for food. He comes back and immediately his ministry explodes publicly and there's people coming from every direction and they all need something from him. And we find Jesus at the end of what has to be one of the most taxing days in the history of humanity getting up early the next morning to go and be alone with the Lord in prayer, to be renewed and strengthened. And so we find Jesus more than he needs food and more than he needs sleep. He needs time alone with the Father in prayer. He needs that to do what it is that he's called to do. And and what we'll see as we continue kind of pressing is that Jesus never lets up on this pattern of prayer. And what we want to talk about today is the example of Jesus in praying continuously. Now, more than just one particular attribute or angle in his prayer practice, what we see today is an observation of the entirety of the life of Jesus as he ministers to others and seeks the Lord in prayer. And so today I want to begin with what I believe is a groundbreaking theological discovery. In fact, this is on its own, if you don't hear anything else, worth the cost of admission today, which, by the way, it was free. Unless guys at the door are are doing something they shouldn't. And say, if you paid to get in, we want you to let me know uh, so that we can address that issue. Uh, But here it is. I want you to get your pen and paper ready. This will blow your mind. Jesus prays a lot. Isn't that awesome? Jesus prays a lot. In fact, you look at the life of Jesus and ultimately in every circumstance imaginable, we find that the natural response of Jesus in the midst of that circumstance is to pray. So so whatever it is that happens, Jesus prays. And so I'm just going to give you the list of things that I observed. Obviously, there's more. This is my list. It's not exhaustive. It's just everything that I could verify in the time that I had to study today. In Mark chapter 1, you find Jesus praying alone. In Matthew 17, you'll find Jesus praying with his friends. You find lots of examples of Jesus praying publicly. Jesus prays for children in Matthew 19. He prays for the observers around him in John 11. 
He prays for his followers in John 17. He prays for us in John 17 when he says, I not only pray for them, but for those who would believe in my name through them. He prays in the morning in Mark 1. He prays at night in Luke 14. He prays in Luke 10 when he's overjoyed. He prays in Matthew 26 when he's in agony. And he prays often the same prayer repeatedly. One of the things I want you to just kind of tuck it kind of under your arm this morning as we go through the rest of the scriptures is in, in Matthew 26, there's this story of Jesus. It's, uh, he's about to be arrested. And so just kind of walk you through it. He's come into the city of Jerusalem as this triumphal entry received as a king. And the crowds, over time, they kind of begin to sour on him because he's not coming to throw out the Romans. He's coming to cast out the power of sin as he dies for us. And so people aren't getting what they expected from Jesus. He has this last meal to to, to spend time with his disciples because he knows what's coming. One of his own that he walks dearly with has betrayed him and made a deal for for a sum of money to, to turn on him and turn him in. Jesus knows what's coming. They cut their Passover meal short and they go out into the evening to a solitary place to pray. Where Jesus prays, Father, please let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will and not mine be done. And then he comes back and he prays again and he says, Father, please take this cup from me, but nevertheless, your will, not mine. And then he prays a third time and the Bible says in the same words. Jesus prays repeatedly. So with that overview, I want us to kind of just settle into one particular text that describes the life of Jesus for us in Luke chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 12, we get kind of a snapshot of a season of life for Jesus as he is going about doing his public ministry. You'll find that there is kind of some general statements being made and a few particular stories being drawn out. But really what we're about to read is a summary of a season of life and ministry. And this is what it says. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to a desolate places to pray. So I want you to to walk through this summary with me. There's a few things that cue us in that, that we're looking at a statement about a season of ministry with a particular example kind of sprinkled in there. It says, as he was going through the city. So there's not a particular city noted. We're just seeing that Jesus was going from place to place, preaching. He was healing people. And in one instance, a man with leprosy came out and asked Jesus to heal him, believing in faith that Jesus could if it was his will too. Jesus tells him he willed. Be clean. And immediately the man is healed. And and so we don't ever deal with leprosy. That's a word we don't throw around much in medical terms. But really it was a generic term used to describe any number of infectious skin diseases. 
And if someone had leprosy because it was infectious and a public health risk, they would quarantine them out to colonies where they lived outside of the city in trash heaps and no one would touch them. So I want you to imagine the experience of being a leper. Is that you're going through your regular life. You've got a wife and kids or you've got a husband and children. Life is good. There's so much to live for. And then one day you get a rash. And it gets worse and it spreads. And so we don't really have a physicians really to speak of. And so you might be inspected by the priest and say, yeah, that looks infectious. And so you're now cast out of your family, your community, your school, your workplace, everything you know. And you go and you take up residence as a homeless person on the trash heap. That was life for this guy. Now, now you can kind of unpack all of, uh, the, the, the social things and being pushed out of it. But let me tell you the thing that scares me the most. That would sh- shake me the most if I had been through that. Is that immediately the people you love will not touch you. A few years ago, when I was in India, we were uh, doing a, a number of things. I got the blessing of traveling with a pastor named Peely, who is just a faithful man who's been, been used by God in so many ways. And uh, we would go and do Bible studies in, in these little, little bitty villages in rural India in the evenings. And, and then during the day, he would go out and do what we would call pastoral and evangelistic kind of meetings with people. He would just go by someone's house and check in on them and make sure their needs were met, pray with them, share the gospel with them over and over and over again. And we got to one place. And there was a man there who had an obvious large tumor on his face. And Peely, just out of care for him, prayed for him. And when he did, he put his arm around him as we would a brother that we're praying for. And the man began to just weep. Because the pastor had, had put his arm around him and prayed for him. And what we didn't realize is that when this man was obviously infected with cancer, that people in his community said he was cursed and his own family wouldn't touch him. So for six months, this man had existed without so much as a hug from his wife and children. And, and so here is someone showing care and revolutionized his world simply in putting his arm around him in care while praying for him. And so this guy has been through the ringer in every way we can imagine, is absolutely broken, and he comes before the Lord in this intense faith that Jesus can heal him, and Jesus does. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus says here. He heals him. He says, now go show yourself to the priest so that they can declare you clean, and you can make the offering you need to make. But don't tell anyone what happened. And and this is where the, the healing ministry of Jesus begins to look starkly different from the alleged faith healers in our world today. Jesus says, don't tell anyone so that God can be glorified and so that things kind of will continue on as they are. And a faith healer puts on a marketing campaign. Now, we believe that God miraculously heals people. We don't believe he needs a camera or a production team to do it. And so I would just caution you, anytime someone promises miracles, they promise healing, but it requires a television camera and a paying audience to do it to step away because that doesn't look like the ministry of Jesus. 
We seek the Lord. We plead with Him to heal. We've seen Him do it in miraculous ways. But it's not showy. And Jesus heals the man. But, but He can't be quiet, can He? And so all the more people begin to gather around Jesus. And so you, you have this description of a season of time where Jesus is going from city to city. He's healing people. He's delivering people. And He's preaching the good news. And the crowds come to Him over and over again. And in the midst of this pattern of life, we get this ending statement that summarizes Jesus' response to all this. And it says, He would withdraw and pray. He would step away from all of the action to pray. Now, it's a little clunky for us to translate this directly from, from the Greek language. And so the two verbs, withdraw and pray, are actually what would you call a present participle. My mom was an English teacher, so I'm actually liking this part. Uh, so if we were going to describe a present participle, we might say that he was withdrawing and praying. Or he would being in prayer. See, that's the weird thing. It's, it's continuous in a way that doesn't even make sense to translate exactly into English. And so what you have here is that there's a pattern being established of Jesus stepping aside regularly and consistently from everything that's going on to withdraw so that he can regularly and consistently be in prayer. This isn't a one-time experience that's being described. It's a pattern of life that's being unveiled to us to describe this is how Jesus lived. He was consistently, regularly in prayer. What we find here is that Jesus exemplifies the commands of Scripture. Whatever the Scriptures command of us, Jesus is the perfect example of how to live it out. And this is really, really helpful. Because oftentimes there are commands in the scripture that I don't know how to do. Let me give you a really easy example here. The Bible commands husbands to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We live in a culture where many, many young men do not know what that looks like. So I can read the command of Scripture, but I've got to see it in order to do it. And, and so if I had a, a godly father that, that, that under the direction of the Spirit worked hard to do that, then I've got a little bit of an idea about what to do, and I kind of just default to do what he did, which, which in God's grace I was given that. Now, none of us are perfect, so we're always tweaking and growing, but, but we're following a model. If we didn't have that, and, and you really look around and go, I don't know what that even means day to day, I would encourage you to kind of saddle up next to an older guy that has done that so you can observe, watch, and learn. But it's one thing to read the command. It's another thing to actually know what it means to practice it. And so I want you to look at the commands of Scripture related to continuously praying. And I want you to understand that Jesus is our place of looking to to see what it means to live that out. So run through these with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. It says, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the will of God. Now, here's the thing. Many of us will spend hours and hours wondering what God's will is for our lives. In fact, there are countless books. You can go into the Christian bookstore and you can find a whole genre within Christian literature of how to figure out God's perfect plan for your life. 
I happen to find the obvious plain teachings of the Bible to be more than enough to keep me busy. And so here, here's what anytime you read the Bible and it says, this is God's will for you. This is like the professor repeating something 10 times in that class that had 400 people in it and saying this will be on the test. Like there's your clue. This matters because we've highlighted this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What? That you would pray without ceasing and that you'd be thankful to God for his blessings in the midst of all circumstances. This is God's will for you. So we're to pray continually without ceasing. Colossians chapter 4 verse 2, if you'll turn there. Very similar command to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, we get a similar command. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and constant, chapter 12, verse 12, not 2. Be constant in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. I want you to think about the words we just use in these commands about how we are to pray. It says we're supposed to pray in all circumstances, at all times, with all supplication, continuously, without ceasing, enduring, persevering, patient in prayer. Now, this is where I think it gets very important for us as we begin to think about how we pray is that the commands tell us something about what prayer is going to feel like. Because we're commanded to be patient, enduring, and persevering in prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never used the words like perseverance to describe hanging out, doing nothing, and taking it easy. I've never had to persevere through a day by the beach. I've never had to persevere through a vacation with just me and my wife with no kids. That's not perseverance. That's glorious. When we use words like endure, persevere, steadfast, watchful, we're saying that it is going to be hard at times to keep praying. It's going to be difficult to pray and pray and pray. And we also find that we're not going to throw up a five-second prayer and every time it'd be answered immediately. Remember Jesus in the garden praying the same prayer, coming back praying the same prayer, coming back praying the same prayer. We have to endure in prayer. And what I want you to get your minds around is we go, okay, what does that look like? What, what, if I wanted to pray that way, what would I do? Well, you go read the Gospels and you do what Jesus does. So what does that mean? Well, it means you pray in every circumstance. You pray in the evening. You set aside time to pray. You pray as you go about your day. See, most of us, if we've cultivated any time in prayer, we, we tend to have strengths in one area or the next. Some of us tend to be good at setting aside time devoted to prayer. Others maybe tend to, to have more of a vibrant experience of prayer that's kind of throughout the day. That you're going through things and you just you just stop and pray. There's a great example in Nehemiah 1 of this where, where Nehemiah stands before the king and the king notices that he's distraught, which is dangerous because the king can, could end you at any moment, and he has. And so 
Nehemiah knows that. And so he's a little concerned. And, and, and the king says, Nehemiah, what, what's, what's going on? And he says, well, how could I not be distraught when the city of my father's lies in ruins? And so the king says, well, what are you asking of me? And the Bible just says, Nehemiah, pray. And then he answered the question. So this isn't a 15-minute prayer time. This is a question was asked. Immediately a prayer was sent up to the Lord and an answer was given. Some of us, we, we can pray like that. There's this kind of ongoing attitude of prayer. Now, both are important. In my experience, people tend to be strong in one area or the other. Some tend to be strong in this regular conversation with God as they go through the day. And that's good and healthy and helpful. Others tend to be strong at setting aside times of intense and devoted prayer. And that is good and healthy and helpful. And what I think this idea of praying without ceasing and enduring in prayer is going to show us is that we've got to cultivate both. Jesus prays in every circumstance at all times and he sets aside time to go and have extended seasons of prayer as well. And so Jesus is the example. And if you want to know what it looks like, To fulfill the command to endure in prayer, the life of Jesus demonstrates it. Now this brings up a question for us. Why is it that we're to pray with perseverance? Why do we endure in prayer? Why do we pray constantly? The first we find in these texts is that we must be watchful. We must be on guard. That if we walk with Jesus, we have entered into a spiritual war zone where the enemy hates the advancement of the kingdom of God and it wars against and we don't war against flesh and blood, but against its powers in the spiritual realm. That's the scriptures teaching. So we've entered into that if we walk with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we begin a ministry of exorcisms. I'm saying we understand that the temptation of sin is present before us, that it will derail our effort to minister to other people, that we need the spirit of God to pave a way for ministry to advance. There's a war going on and we're told to be watchful and to stay in constant communication with headquarters as we enter into the battle. We do that through prayer. We're also told that it is the will of God for us. That we be constant in prayer. Because God is our Father and He wants us to speak to Him. Sometimes the simplest truths about God are the most powerful. That He loves us as a father should. Now some of you didn't have great fathers. So I want to tell you what a father should do. A father should receive a child with gentleness and protect them with strength. A father should provide every good thing and deny nothing good for their children. And so when God uses the language of being a father to us, that's it. And and so we have this amazing blessing of the king of all creation being our father so that we can wake up the king of the universe in the middle of the night for nothing of consequence. Only a child would do that. And that's the relationship that he's invited us into. He wants us to walk with him. And third, he's chosen to move in response to our prayers. He can do everything that He desires to do at any moment, but He has chosen to allow us into that process as we plead with Him to move. And so there are things that God has ordained in His sovereign hand to do that He will not do if we don't pray. Now, that's an interesting statement because God is sovereign and He's going to do it. He's chosen to do it. But the means is our prayer and pleading with Him. So we endure in prayer. The question, I think, comes down practically where we wrestle with this 
where prayer becomes an act of endurance is what happens when we pray and the prayers go unanswered. I would suspect that most of us have pled with the Lord for something for an extended period of time only to not receive an answer. What do we do in the midst of that? And why do these prayers go unanswered? And so um, I wanted to take a chance to try to answer some of those questions today. Why, when we endure in prayer, do we continue pleading with the Lord to receive no answer at times? If you turn to James chapter 4 with me, I think you begin to see some of the reason why. Now, James chapter 4 is a bit of a corrective section. We're going to look at verses 2 and 3. So James is addressing some kind of inappropriate behavior, some, some aggression towards one another, and some jealousy and envy. But in the midst of that, you're going to find something about how prayer works. It says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so I want to begin with that. What he's pointing out is that oftentimes we look to the wrong places for the things we desire. We believe that we can receive those things from people, and so we try to take them by force. But then in the end of verse 2, we find out a few very important things about prayer. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So in the midst of this correction, you're going to find something interesting about prayer. One, oftentimes we do not receive because we do not ask. Two, sometimes we ask for the wrong thing. And third, sometimes we ask for the wrong reason. Let's start with the first one. Sometimes we're simply not asking. And I can tell you dozens of times that I've had this conversation with someone. We'll change the names and give you a generic scenario. But if you feel like this is you, just know you're not alone. Someone will come to me and say, you know, my mother or my grandmother is sick. Would you pray for them? And so I want to pray for them and I want to pray for them with them. I want to come alongside and pray with them. So I I want to know what, what am I praying for? And so then I'll get more details about grandma or mom, whoever it is, about their condition. Well, it's it's this sickness and this is what the doctors are saying. And and all that's helpful information to know to pray for someone. But that isn't really my question. My question is, what do you want me to ask God to do? Because I'm going to go pray for you. I'm going I'm to take your request before the Lord. But if I'm going to take your request before the Lord, I have to actually know your request. So what are we asking God for? Are we asking God to heal her? Because I'll pray that prayer. Is she ready to go home and be with the Lord? Are we asking God to use her passing to draw the family together? Is there some tension between aunts and uncles that, that this moment could be a moment where God does reconciliation? Or are there siblings that have never heard the gospel and in the midst of this walking faithfully with Jesus is going to be a witness to them? Are they going to hear the gospel at the funeral? And are we praying for them to be saved? Because I'm all in. But you've got to tell me what the request is. Sometimes we don't get answers to our prayers because we pray things like, God, I I just want to lift up this to you. But we don't actually make a request. God can't answer a prayer that we're not giving to him. So look at Philippians chapter 4 with me. You're going to find something very plain. This is a command of the scripture regarding our prayers. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he says, don't get worked up and anxious about things. Rather, pray about everything. And as you pray, let your requests be known. 
So I understand because we don't want to be presumptive and say, uh, I, I know for sure God's going to heal them. But don't stop asking. Let your requests be known to God. James says at times our prayers are not answered because we're not really asking. So ask. Ask boldly. So, so when, when grandma's in the hospital and everything looks like her time is coming, if she wants to go home and be with the Lord, if she's ready for that, then, then I'm okay with praying for God to give her comfort until the moment he takes her home. That's a blessing. We celebrate when she goes to be with the Lord in glory. We will be rejoice. The angels will be receiving her with joy. We'll be sad, but that's okay to pray that prayer. And it's okay to pray the prayer to ask God to use that to transform some family dynamic and to bring reconciliation and draw lost family members to to, to faith. It's also good to pray, God, would you just heal her so that your power would be seen? But we've got to make our requests known. Second, sometimes we ask for the wrong things. And because God is a good and loving Father, He's not going to give us those things which will destroy us. When I turned 16, I got my driver's license. Now, some of you young people, you wait. I don't understand that. My parents were tired of driving me places. So at 16, it was get him his own license. So we go to the DMV. We get that thing done. And because I lived in the middle of nowhere, there was not even a line there. And I got a car. Now, my first car wasn't glorious. It was a 13-year-old Ford F-150 with a straight six, three-speed standard on the tree. And... It had great gas mileage because we towed it half the places it went. It was not the car I requested. The car I requested was a 1968 Mustang Fastback with a large V8, racing cams, four-barrel carburetors. It it was awesome, three-speed on the floor, not up here. The problem was my dad knew that if I had that car, that I would wrap it around a tree in about 18 seconds. So he said no to the request. I've continued to pray that prayer and God has continued to say no, which tells me that I'm not ready to receive it yet. God's not going to give us things that if we receive them, they're going to destroy us. He loves us. Sometimes we ask for the wrong things. They seem good to us, but they aren't what we need. And so God says no. Sometimes we ask for good things with inappropriate motives. This is what my friend calls the so that of prayer. That we we have to understand the so that because that's what gets to the heart of what we really want. So you can ask for good things for the wrong reasons. As a father, you can ask for your children to have blessings and success and to do good in school. And those are good things. God, God doesn't begrudge any of that but if we're asking that so that we can appear a certain way in front of other people and so that we can have the right bumper stickers on our car well that's an inappropriate motive and so sometimes we ask for the wrong things sometimes we ask for good things for the wrong reasons and because of that we don't receive an answer and sometimes guys, sometimes god wants us to wait on him A couple weeks ago, we looked at Deuteronomy 8, where God explains kind of what he did to the people of Israel as they walked through the wilderness, and they didn't have food available to them. He says, sometimes he he let you hunger to humble you so that you trust him, and he fed you bread you didn't know from heaven so that you would be humble and you'd trust him. Is that in the midst of that process, in the midst of accomplishing something, God is making us someone. 
And that endurance, that patience, that waiting is transformative for us. And God loves us and he desires to see us grow. Now, the question for us where the rubber meets the road is if you're in that season and you keep praying, you keep praying, what do you do? How do you plug on? I tell you this, it's not easy. For, for several months, Leisha and I have been praying and praying and praying really about the same thing and, and, and had really at the moment begun to believe that God wasn't going to answer that prayer only to keep praying kind of in desperation and to see the Lord do it, to see the Lord move. So we keep praying. That's the first thing we do. The first thing we do when we're in that season of prayer and we're not getting answers is we just keep praying. Because in the midst of that prayer is when God begins to work and shape our hearts. God begins to kind of move as we submit ourselves to him in prayer. We go before him. God begins to work in and on us. In John 16, the Bible tells us that the spirit of God is coming. Jesus promised it. He says he's bring you to all truth. And as we pray, Romans 8 says that the Spirit's working with us. He's our prayer partner. And so the Spirit of God is working as we pray to lead us into truth, to shape us into the image of God. So we keep on praying because God is transforming and He's shaping our hearts. Prayer is not so much just about changing things as it is about changing us. And God uses that as we submit to Him to begin to work, to begin to align our will with His. And so keep praying. It may be that God is going to answer that in some amazing way and you'll celebrate that. It may be that God is going to change your hearts in the midst of it so that the thing you requested you'll no longer desire and God will give you something that in the end is better because He loves you. The second thing I would tell you is to just keep going before Him. The interesting thing to me about our relationship with God is that he doesn't find us annoying. He doesn't find us bothersome. Sometimes you have those moments where where you just hear your name over and over and over and over and over again. And it's like the next person that asks me for anything. I just might blow a gasket. God doesn't operate that with us. He's patient. Not only is He patient with us and continues to love us and hear our prayer as we cry out to Him, He actually encourages us to just keep praying. And I've shared this with some of you before, but if you could turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 62. This is a passage of Scripture that I will go back to forever and ever as long as I live. Isaiah 62 verse 6 God is speaking to the prophet and actually to the city about his upcoming deliverance. They had walked away from God because of that. They had endured judgment at the hands of the nations. But God has promised to restore them. And so this is what God commands the people of God to do in verse 6. He says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. So these watchmen aren't looking for people coming in to sneak into the city. They're they're not sitting there covertly observing the countryside, waiting to see if an enemy will attack. An enemy's already attacked. These watchmen are there to make intercession for the people of God. That's why they're to never be silent. Now, let's keep going. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. 
and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So think through this with me. He's given a command. He has set people. God has ordained that people should gather on the walls and they should pray unending prayers for God's deliverance. He's appointed it and he is commanding the people that he appointed to continually pray, to not rest, but to patiently persevere, enduring in prayer. And he has said, you do not rest and you do not give me rest. You keep pleading before me until I answer and do for you what I have promised to do. He's don't stop. Don't stop praying. Keep praying. Keep waking me up at 2 a.m. with the prayer. Keep bringing it before me over and over and over again. I'm not annoyed. I'm, I'm not bothered. Keep coming. Keep coming because every time you come to Him, every time you lean in and you make that request again, you demonstrate that you trust Him. You demonstrate that you believe He is good and that you believe He is mighty. And so taking that prayer before Him is an act of praise to God because you know He's the one who can move. And so you take it to Him over and over and over again. He says, don't stop. Don't stop. He's not annoyed when we pray. He said, you take no rest. In your prayer. And to me. Give me no rest. To pray with endurance. To pray with persistence. To pray with passion. Over and over. And over again. Sometimes it's God's will. To wait. So that when he answers you. In a way that you didn't see coming. That you didn't expect. You're blown away when you see his goodness. And in the waiting, you learn to walk with Him. In the waiting, you learn His love for you. In the waiting, He gets to carry you as you go through this season of difficulty. In Deuteronomy, when when He looks back upon the way He blessed and cared for His people, He says, you're going to look back on the wilderness and you'll discover how all of this way I carried you as a father carries a child. But that time of struggle and waiting and perseverance in the wilderness is formative to make us who God has designed us to be so that we'll fulfill what he's created us to do. So if I could just leave you with a few thoughts practically. One is make your request known to God. Pour out the desire of your heart before him. Don't be apprehensive before your father to make your request known. In fact, if you don't do that, you're simply disobeying what he's commanded you to do. He says, make your request known. At all times, in all circumstances, with all supplication. Second is to keep praying. Just keep praying. And I would tell you this, James tells us that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I would enlist other people to pray with me. That whatever the circumstance around your life is, that you would follow the example that the people of Israel were given and you would set watchmen around it and they would give the Lord no rest on your behalf. Sometimes we, 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 we pull away from that because we don't want the vulnerability of really making our request known but for someone else. Because oftentimes, in order to solicit prayer from other people, we've got to be honest about where we're at and we're uncomfortable with that. 
I mean, if you're here today and you're in a season of life where you just feel like you don't sense the Lord's presence and, 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 and you've been in church for a long time and that's a difficult thing for you to say, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, is that the quicker you can own that before God and someone else to pray with you, the quicker that begins to change. So enlist other people. Open up your life to them so that they can pray with you.